We'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we are going to pick up where we left off last Sunday, talking about giving. And in light of that, I want to tell you a quick story about two men who were shipwrecked on a deserted island, an uncharted island, in fact. And one of the men frantically paced back and forth, screaming, We're going to die! We're going to die. There's no food. There's no water. We're going to die. And the second man sat there calmly propped up against a palm tree, which drove the other man even more crazy. And so he got down on his knees and he shook this man by his shoulders saying, don't you understand? We're going to die. And the man quietly responded, no, you don't understand. I make $100,000 a week. The other man looked at him dumbfounded and said, well, what difference does that make? We're on an island without food and water. We're going to die. And the man replied, you just don't get it, do you? I make $100,000 a week and I give a tenth of it to my church. My pastor will find me. (laughs) Well, first of all, I don't know how much any of you give and I don't want to know how much you give because that's between you and the Lord. Secondly, despite what many Christians assume, we learned last week that giving 10% of your income or tithing, as it's often referred to, is not the biblical standard. It's merely a guideline, particularly for us living uh, after the cross. Um, The concept of tithing is taught in the Old Testament, but nowhere in the New Testament does God mandate a fixed amount or percentage that we're required to give. And through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the concept of tithing has been replaced by what is referred to as grace giving. And we talked about where that term came from. It came from 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 as we see that's the word grace or grace, gracious is the common thread that's weaved through these two chapters. But when we understand this concept of, of grace giving, rather than asking the question, how much does God expect me to give, the question becomes, how does God expect me to give? And so while the New Testament does not mandate how much we should give, it does provide us principles by which we can determine how we should give. And in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 contain the most concentrated section of principles on giving in the entire Bible. In fact, there are 12 principles here that I want us to see this morning that will instruct us and inspire us to be a church full of generous, joyful, sacrificial givers. Now, that's a sentimental little phrase there uh, to me personally and should be for those of us maybe that were part of the ground floor here at Lakeside that were a part of planning the church and seeing the first uh, building uh, built over there. Um, uh, You may remember this, that when we, uh, the Lord provided us these 12, 13 acres that we sit on today, um, and we decided, hey, let's go ahead and build this first building over there. Uh, We, God led us to not go to the bank and, and get a loan. We decided, let's just trust God to provide for his work through his people. And so we thought, well, what's a way that we can give honor to God in that? And so usually when you drive by a construction site, you see a sign out in front along the road that says, um, this project funded by Wells Fargo Bank or, you know, uh, you pick the bank, Bank of America or Amy G. Bank, right? 
So we had a sign made and put out there on, this, on the road there that said this project funded by God through the generous, joyful, sacrificial giving of his people. And we thought that might be a fun way to catch some people's attention as they're driving down Freeport Drive going, what, honey, what did that just say? I've never seen that before, right? It was just unique and maybe set us apart from what most people are used to seeing when it comes to churches and their building projects. So this whole idea of us being a church full of generous, joyful, sacrificial givers is part of our DNA as a church. It's part of who the Lord has made us to be and I think wants to continue to help us excel still more uh, in this area of giving. And that was what was on Paul's heart here in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And one of the projects that God used Paul to accomplish uh, during his ministry, particularly on his third missionary journey, was to collect this offering for the persecuted famine-stricken saints in Jerusalem. And so as he traveled around to all the different churches that he had previously planted, he asked the believers there to contribute money to help their impoverished brothers and sisters uh, who were suffering in Jerusalem. And so when he visited the local churches in the region of Macedonia, he was blown away that in spite of their own poverty, they gave more generously, more joyfully, more sacrificially than anyone he'd ever seen in his life. And so Paul used their example to instruct and inspire the church in Corinth to give to the collection for the Jerusalem church. Now, this was not the first time that Paul uh, mentioned this collection. In fact, uh, we hear it specifically talked about in 1 Corinthians 16, and I'd encourage you just to flip back a couple pages there as we begin this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul said, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Here it is. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. We can start here, in fact, with our first principle, uh, and that is we should give regularly. We should give regularly. Notice he says on the first day of every week. So the early church, as you know, gathered on the first day of the week, Sunday, for instruction, fellowship, prayer, uh, for the breaking of bread together, which included a meal and the Lord's Supper. We, we know that from Acts 2.42, Acts 20, verse 7. But notice how he said on the first day of every week, each one of you. So everyone, in the, everyone, uh, Paul commanded everyone to set aside a certain amount of money and bring it to church with them every Sunday, on the first day of every week, each one of you. So, first of all, everyone in the church should play a role in giving towards the Lord's work, whether you're a child, whether you're a teenager, whether you're an adult, maybe you're on a fixed income, maybe you're experiencing financial difficulties, you are included in this command to put aside and save as he may prosper. We tried to help our children when they were little uh, to learn this principle of, of setting aside something every week to bring to the Lord. And so what we would do is we'd give them three quarters every week. And they had three little jars that they would keep on their dressers. And one was the God jar, one was their jar, and one was a savings jar. 
And so they had to take one of those three quarters and put one in each one of those jars. And then every Sunday, they would take that quarter out of their God jar, right, and bring it to church. Uh, just to get them into the mindset that this is what God's called all, this, all of us to do on a regular basis. Now, typically people give to the church based on when they get paid, um, whether that's weekly, twice a month, once every month. My suggestion, and it is a suggestion, okay, I don't want to go beyond what Scripture teaches here, but my suggestion is that you try to spread out your giving over the month so that you have something to bring with you like it said, every week. Um, putting money in the offering box or in an offering plate is, I think, a vital part of our weekly worship to the Lord. Um, giving is just as much an act of worship as singing, as praying, as listening to the Word of God preached. And so we should never come before the Lord empty-handed. Now, I say that realizing I'm talking to a bunch of people who live in a uh, cash-free society, um, or cashless society, I should say, uh, in an age of debit cards and credit cards and auto payments, and, you know, we, we use our credit cards to get, mi- you know, air miles and, you know, hotel miles and whoever, whatever else you're trying to get through your credit card, right? Amazon points, Costco points, um, we, we, we do that. And so uh, some of us maybe find it more convenient to give online. Um, we, we actually hesitated to offer online giving for years just because we didn't, we didn't want to uh, um, take away the, the, the sense of this is an act of worship to the Lord and, and you're bringing your offering with you to church on Sunday. And, and so, but then we realized, you know, I think it happened when our kids were um, depositing their Christmas gift check on their phone. And I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, oh, we're depositing our check. They're scanning their check. I'm like, what are you, we usually like, endorse it, send it to go walk to the, you know, go to the bank. And they're like, oh no, you can do it through your phone. I'm like, I'm old school. So I don't know all that stuff. Right. So I don't think our kids have ever, you know, I don't think they carry cash. I don't think they, um, I don't think they've ever written a check in their life. Right. Everything is done through cards and online. And of course, most of us are probably not wanting to have to go through the hassle of writing checks to pay all of our bills. And so we've done it all online now, auto pay, right? So again, we live in that kind of society now. Uh, A lot of it is out of convenience. And so if you find it more convenient to give online, then great, do that. But make sure that your giving is not out of sight, out of mind. I honestly don't think about, you know, my internet bill, my electric bill, my, you know, because why? They're just, they, they automatically get paid for um, but you don't want that to be the case about your giving. You want to be thinking about this as an act of worship. And, and I also think that too many Christians only give when they feel convicted to give or, or, or when they're instructed to give. In other words, their giving is more sporadic. It's more impulsive, whereas Paul said that our giving should be done in a regular, systematic way. Notice what he says in verses 3 and 4. We're still in 1 Corinthians 16. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Now turn over to, back to uh, 2 Corinthians 8. Notice he picks up with this idea of this offering again. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So Macedonia is uh, the northern province of Greece. 
Uh, the churches there would have included the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Berea. And so, again, this is not the first time that, that Paul was talking to the Corinthians here about this offering. Um, he originally had told them about it um, either in 1 Corinthians where we just read or perhaps even previously in a lost letter. There's a Bible scholars say there's, there's more than just First and Second Corinthians. There was a lost letter. There was First Corinthians. There was a severe letter. And then there was Second Corinthians. And so I don't want to confuse you with all that. But uh, they had already heard about this offering and they had, had already responded with great eagerness and were excited to contribute a generous amount of money. But in the meantime, between the lost letter of 1 Corinthians, the severe letter, and 2 Corinthians, somewhere in there, uh, false teachers had infiltrated the church in Corinth and, and undermined Paul's ministry among the believers there by spreading confusing rumors about his motives. And they accused Paul of being a, a money-hungry huckster, a guy who was in it for the money. And if you know anything about 2 Corinthians, it's really a defense of his apostleship. And he's defending himself against all these false attacks and false claims. And so apparently these attacks, these rumors, these lies about Paul had sidetracked the Corinthians from following through on their original intention to give a substantial offering for uh, the, 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 brothers, the brethren there in Jerusalem. And so as we're going to see, Paul sent Titus to deliver the severe letter and had also encouraged him to help them follow through on the collection they had promised. And so Paul was now writing, them, writing to them for the fourth time, perhaps, and encouraging them to follow through, to finish the collection and have it ready for him when he comes. And, and so he used the example of the Macedonian churches to motivate the Corinthian church to give in like manner. And again, these churches in Macedonia gave unlike anyone Paul had ever seen. And the question is, what motivated them to give in such an exemplary way? Well, Paul says it there in that first verse. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been, in, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. <coughs> Excuse me. So, Paul says that their generosity was an evidence of God's grace in their lives. Rather than giving any glory to the Macedonians, he was giving all the glory to God. And, and this is really the same model that we should follow. Uh, we should give regularly out of gratitude for the grace that God has shown us in Christ. So that's our first principle is, is to give regularly. Um, secondly, we are to give generously. Generously. Notice he says, I want to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So you've got a lot of conflicting, contrasting concepts here. You have a great ordeal of affliction. You have an abundance of joy. You have deep poverty and then you have a wealth of liberality. You're like, what is going on here? I mean, these people are going through horrific trials and affliction, and yet they have abundant joy. They're, they're deeply impoverished, and yet they're giving liberally. 
You say, what was up with these believers? Well, they lived in an area that had experienced the ravages of war. Uh, They had been plundered by the Romans. And so this probably contributed to their deep poverty, uh, extremely deep poverty. This is the most severe type of economic depression imaginable. This is the kind of poverty that leads someone to become a beggar. And, And they had resorted to begging all right, but, but not begging to get money, begging to give money. Notice verses three and four. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. So here were this group of people who, who faced these insurmountable difficulties which should have discouraged them on a human level from even thinking about giving anything. Like Paul shows up and says, hey, there's some people in need in Jerusalem. Like, really? In worse need than us? I mean, Paul, have you looked around? We're in, we're in pretty bad shape. We could use an offering ourselves. That wasn't their response. They, they didn't make excuses about why they didn't need to give. Like, we better hold on to this right now because we don't know what the future holds and we can't give right now. Things are just too tight. Maybe, maybe we can give a little more a little later. They did not make any excuses. They, they understood that giving is not a matter of what you have, but a matter of the heart. And even though they hardly had anything to live on, they, they had extremely generous hearts. I'll never forget one of my first trips to India and we were ministering to some children in this home uh, it was basically for orphans, and so uh, we went to the to the bakery uh, and and bought some sweets, and and brought the kids to the park and sat them all down in the park and we handed out all these sweets, something that they had probably never tasted before in their life, and 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 it was so humbling and so convicting that these kids, as soon as we gave them their sweets, they turned around and said, "Hey, do you want a bite? Do you want a piece?" Rather than you would assume, they just take it and just greedily, right, gobble it up, thinking of themselves, but they were so generous, they were so thoughtful, even though they had nothing. And so it says here that despite their deep poverty, they overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Again, that idea there of liberality is, of course, generosity, but also the idea of sincerity, the opposite of duplicity. In other words, they were not double-minded in their giving. They had a single-minded devotion to God and to the needs of others. So they were, they were, excuse me, (coughs) they were generous givers. I can't talk this morning. (coughs) All right, there we go. Thirdly, a third principle here is they gave sacrificially. We need to give sacrificially. Notice again, verse three. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. So in other words, they gave sacrificially. They they pushed giving past the point where the figures didn't add up. The bottom line said they couldn't or shouldn't give, but they gave anyway. It, It appeared unreasonable. And again, this is something that we must grapple with as American Christians who tend to give out of whatever we have left over after spending lavishly for ourselves and our families. Rarely do we give an amount 
that would necessitate a reduced standard of living. C.S. Lewis said this very convicting sentence. He said, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, and amusements is up to the standard common among those with, with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. I mean, that's one of those statements you just said, let's close in prayer, right? And go home and contemplate that. To give sacrificially means that in order to give, you have to alter your lifestyle. You essentially have to lower your standard of living. You deny yourself certain things that you would like, places you might want to go but don't, things you want to do but you can't. Maybe it means you put off that purchase of a new house or a new car or a new boat. It may mean that you sell something of value and give the money to the Lord. Again, we know little of this kind of giving here in America. Randy Alcorn, again, I quoted him last week. This is, again, from Money, Possessions, and Eternity, said this, much of our giving in the Western world is not giving, it is merely discarding. Donating secondhand goods to church rummage sales and benevolence organizations and missions is certainly better than throwing them away, but giving away something we didn't want in the first place is not giving, but selective disposal. In fact, this sort of giving is often done because we want a newer or better version of what we're giving away. Sacrificial giving is giving away what we would rather keep. I love the example of David in 2 Samuel when he wanted to offer an offering to the Lord and uh, somebody wanted to honor him as king and, and said, hey, David, here's the land, uh, here, here's the wood, here, here's the sacrifice here, you can have it all. And David said, thanks, but no thanks. He said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. And he whipped out his, paycheck, or his, his checkbook, right? And he paid the guy for all that stuff. So we need to give sacrificially. Number four, we need to give voluntarily. Give voluntarily. Notice the end of verse three. It says they gave, Paul said they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. So Paul didn't have to manipulate them. He didn't have to intimidate them to give. They gave voluntarily of their own accord. He didn't have to bribe them with some kind of holy hardware that you see on TV all the time. Hey, if you give this, we'll send you this. He didn't have to lay a guilt trip on them, didn't have to pressure them to give. In fact, they pressured him to let them give. And they vigorously pleaded with him to let them give to to this relief project. And, And they didn't see giving as an obligation, but as a privilege. They didn't want to miss out on the opportunity. Nobody had to twist their arm to give. They wanted to give. So the question is, when it comes to giving, is do you give because you have to? Do you give because you ought to? Or do you give because you want to? There's a lot of have to um, giving that we do in life, right? When that electric bill comes or the mortgage payment is due, right? That's a have to. If you want to have the lights stay on and you want to keep, have a, have a roof over you, you, you have to write that check. And, And that's really not a fun check to write, is it? But hopefully, like, for example, we're all buying presents for our loved ones for Christmas. I mean, that's fun. Like, I want to do this. This is exciting. 
I'm looking forward to giving this gift and to see their reaction. That's the idea that we should give voluntarily, not grudgingly, as we'll see in just a moment. Number five, we need to give sequentially. We need to give sequentially. You say, what does that mean? Well, look at verse five. He says, and this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. In other words, the the Macedonian Christians understood the proper order for giving to the Lord. They gave themselves to the Lord first, and then they gave their money. They had done what Paul had commanded believers to do in Romans 12.1, where Paul said this, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Bottom line is God doesn't want your money, he wants you. And in fact, if he doesn't have you, then he's not the least bit interested in your money. And I think it's important that we understand that that giving money does not earn God's favor. No amount of money can buy you a ticket to heaven. You could be the world's greatest philanthropist and give away more money to charity than anyone else, but you will still spend eternity in hell if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. So before you can give gifts to God, you need to first receive the gift of salvation that he offers you through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, have you received the free gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That needs to be your first priority. You need to give sequentially. Give yourself first and then your money. Number six, give sincerely. Give sincerely. Notice verse six. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in all love, excuse me, and in the love we inspired in, in you, see that you abound in this gracious work as well. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. So the point here is to give sincerely. And apparently, according to what Paul said here, the Corinthians had excelled in every other spiritual virtue. And Paul was appealing to them here to also excel in their love, to excel still more in their love um, by excelling in their giving. And that offering that they would give would prove the sincerity of their love to God and their love for others. And again, the principle here is how much we, we give is evidence of how much we love God. But let me be quick to say this. God is far more concerned about why we give than how much we give. Again, why do you give? Do you give to relieve guilt? Do you give to to maybe be thought highly of other people? Or, Or do you give to show God how much you love him? And so in regards to giving, it's it's not the amount that matters, but it's the motive. You remember the story of the widow who gave those two mites 
This is Mark chapter 12, verse 41. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. In other words, Christ was commending her, not for the amount that she gave, but again, the motive with which she gave it. So we need to give sincerely. Number seven, we need to give proportionately. We need to give proportionately. Notice verse 10. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. In other words, again, he's just saying, hey, follow through on your original commitment. For, verse 12, if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Quoting there uh, um, from the Old Testament, about gathering manna, and apparently not everybody could gather as much manna as somebody else, but everyone gathered enough and they could share with one another. But the basic principle here, again, is in verse 12, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, we should give according to what we have. 1 Corinthians 16.2, we're to lay aside something every week as he may prosper. In other words, God doesn't expect us to give him what we don't have. We shouldn't go into debt so we can give more money. God simply expects us to give back to him based on what he gives to us. And so if he chooses to give us a little, we give a little. If he gives us a lot, then we give a lot. And so the, more the, the, more, the principle is the more you're giving, the more you should give. I assume you're familiar with the name R.G. Letourneau. If you don't know who he was, he was the founder of Letourneau University in Longview, um, he made a fortune by inventing that large earth-moving equipment that's just become, you know, we see it everywhere now. Um, unlike most people, though, it's interesting, his, his story, his testimony, that um, most people, when their giving increase, or excuse me, when their income increases, so does their, their, their standard of living increase, right? But unlike most people there, he maintained the same standard of living. Even as the Lord continued to prosper him, he maintained the same standard of living. And he eventually, it says, they got to the place, his biography talks about this, he got to the place in his life where he was giving 90% to God's work and living off of 10%. That's kind of cool, huh? 
Someone asked him one time, well, how is it that you give away so much and yet you have so much left? And he simply replied, I suppose it's like this. I shovel it out and God shovels it in and he's got a bigger shovel than I do. So again, this is a good, good, good idea here of the whole idea of giving proportionally. Notice what, what Paul goes on to say here in verses 16 to the end of the chapter. And as I read this, get past the, the housekeeping details, okay? It sounds like he's just kind of given some kind of trip itinerary and some things that really don't, don't relate to uh, this matter. But I, I bet you could pick out another principle or two um, in these verses about giving. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted our appeal, but he, being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been um, appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the church, of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of your reason for boasting about you. Now, I could have made this uh, its own separate point, if you will, but this is maybe... This is for free. This is maybe seven and a half, okay? Ready for this? That we should give wisely or maybe you could say it this way, knowledgeably or maybe you could say it this way, discerningly. In, in, a, in a day and age where we get all sorts of appeals from all sorts of people wanting money from us, we can't give something to everyone, right? So you have to be discerning. You have to be strategic. You have to be wise. And, and part of that being wise and discerning in how you distribute the wealth that God has given you is you need to know who you're giving that money to and how it's going to be used. And, and there needs to be some kind of credibility and some kind of accountability for the use of that money. And so I think that's what Paul was getting at here. He was talking about, he, he knew that his, his reputation was in question about handling of money. And so Paul talked about this unnamed man who must have been well known to the Corinthians. He didn't even tell him who he was. This guy, though, was traveling with Paul to provide credibility and accountability for not just him, but also Titus as they delivered this money to Jerusalem. And so Paul was protecting himself from any possible accusations that he was mishandling the funds. And so he was striving to remain above reproach when it came to this offering. So again, I think we need to remain above reproach when it comes to how we handle money, how we give it, how we receive it. And even I would speak as the pastor of the church that we need to have, we need to be above reproach 
in, in how we use God's money here at this church. And I can speak for the rest of the elders. We feel a huge responsibility to be good stewards of that which the Lord has given to us through you and this church and make sure we distribute that and, and invest that in ways that would honor and glorify him. Number eight, we need to give bountifully. Bountifully, notice uh, chapter nine, verse one, for it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them but I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go ahead, go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. So you see what's happening here. Paul says, hey, just so you know, I used you guys as an example to inspire and to motivate the Macedonians. And, and, and they think really highly of you because of your generosity and your, 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 your desire to give a bountif- bountifully to this, to, this, uh, to this offering. And so you've been an inspiration to them. You know, you don't want to look bad when they show up and there's nothing there. Like, hey, wait a minute, Paul. I thought you said these guys were, you know, giving more generously than anybody. And so now, again, he's turning this around and saying now he's using the Macedonians to inspire the Corinthians to give bountifully. Again, notice verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly, which is the opposite of bountifully, right, will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. We have to be careful with a verse like verse 6 because this is one of those verses that preachers and and, and, and teachers maybe use um, to teach that God promises to make you rich if you give to him. Uh, it's the prosperity gospel, right, that God wants you to be wealthy. And, and, and so um, if you give this to the Lord, he'll give you this. Well, nowhere in the Bible are we told to give to get. We're just told to give and to trust God. At the same time, the Bible does make it clear that if we give to God, he will bless us. It may not always be financial or material blessing, but it will always involve tremendous spiritual and eternal blessings for sure, laying up treasure in heaven. That's the best investment plan, by the way, especially as we're all watching the stock market and seeing what it's doing to our investments, right? It's like, hey, maybe I should invest somewhere else. Well, how about investing in heaven? There's no better investment that'll never depreciate, no matter what kind of inflation or recession we're dealing with. But notice the agricultural analogy here. The the whole principle here is we we reap what we sow. If you sow a little, you reap a little. If you sow a lot, you, you reap a lot. Jesus himself said in Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. They will pour it into your lap. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. I don't know, um, I probably appreciate that verse because I had to do a lot of harvesting 
growing up in Massachusetts with our garden and you'd, you'd have a, a box or a basket and you'd start putting stuff in there, right? And, uh, and all of a sudden it would, full, it, would, it, it would look full, right? And then what, what would you do? You'd, you'd, you'd either you know, shake it up a little bit and everything starts to settle and you can put more in there. Or I was raking some leaves last night and, and uh, you know, uh, you, you put it, they fill up the trash can and you're like, oh, I can't fit any more. Like, what are we going to do? Well, what do you do? You just, you press them down. You press, keep pressing, break. you keep pouring more on, right? That's the idea is that, hey, you give to the Lord and he's going to give back to you and, and you're going to be able to press that down, shake it together. It's going to be running over. There's a man I know who has said to me on a number of occasions, man, Ken, I don't know why God is so good to me, why he just seems to bless me and, and to give me more than I deserve. And I said, I'll tell you why. Because while I don't know what you give, I know you're a generous giver. And, and you are somebody that God trusts, that he can bless and, and give you lots of money because he knows you're going to invest it back into his work and not just spend it on yourself. And so that's why he keeps giving you more and more and more so you can give more and more and more. So we need to give bountifully. Number nine, we need to give purposely. Purposely. Notice verse seven. He, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. So we should give purposely, not impulsively. Hopefully this isn't true of you, but I'm sure there are some Christians who give little or no forethought to what they're going to give on any given Sunday. They just kind of show up and kind of go with the flow, and maybe the first time they think about what they're going to give is maybe when the ushers start passing the plates or, um, you know, when there's a need mentioned, um, perhaps. I think what Paul was implying here is that we should carefully and prayerfully consider ahead of time what God would have us to give. We should come with some kind of premeditated plan of action. We should already know ahead of time what we're going to give before we ever get to church. And the only thing that might change that figure is if maybe you hear of another need, you're made aware of a, a situation and you sense God is prompting you to meet that need through the resources he's entrusted to you and at that point you give above and beyond your normal offering. And whenever we talk about, hey, we've got this um, building project or we have um, this, this missionary need or we have this opportunity to buy gifts for these kids and you know, those are, again, hopefully... Uh, on top of what you're already giving, right? We all are committed to giving regularly uh, an amount of money to the Lord and then these other needs are above and beyond. The, 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 the trellis project, the thing we've been talking about here, that's just kind of an above and beyond kind of gift. You say, well, how, how much should I give? Well, as I've already mentioned, nowhere are we told in the New Testament a specific percentage or amount that we're required to give. We're simply to give freely and generously to the Lord in response to the grace that he's lavished on us. So you tell me how much you should give. Again, surely those who live on this side of the cross who have experienced the grace of God in Christ should be willing to give at least as much as those who are living under the law, right? Right? We talked about that last week. And I think the, the bottom line is that God expects every one of us to purpose in the privacy of our own hearts what we're going to give and then give it anonymously. Matthew chapter six, we read that last week. So 
Give purposely. And then number 10, give cheerfully. Give cheerfully. I love this. Notice he says, verse 7, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That word grudgingly means grief or sorrow or sadness, like, oh man, I don't want to give this, I don't want to part with this. No, giving regretfully, giving reluctantly, that's the idea here. He says, no, don't give grudgingly, give cheerfully. That Greek word for cheerful there is where we get the English word hilarious. You may have heard that expression that you should be a hilarious giver. You know, you should be chuckling when you kind of drop that check in the box, right? I mean, this is like fun. This is exciting. We should be joyful. We should be enthusiastic about giving. God loves that kind of cheerful heart. And it's those people who give this way, joyfully, enthusiastically discover that nothing brings greater joy than being able to meet the needs of others and support God's work through their gifts. So give cheerfully. Also, number 11, give confidently. We're almost done here. Give confidently. Notice he says, verse 8, and God is able to make all grace, there it is again, abound to you. God made the grace his grace abound to the Macedonians. Guess what, Corinthians? God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for growing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in everything for all liberality. Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that they could have the confidence to give generously, give sacrificially. Why? Because God would provide for their every need. In other words, when we're generous with our money, we never have to worry if that if we give to the Lord, somehow we're going to not have what we need. God is always faithful to replenish whatever we give away, and I'll make sure we have everything we need. You can't outgive God. And, and how much we give not only demonstrates how much we love God, but it also demonstrates how much we trust God. Jesus told his disciples to not worry about what they were going to eat, what they were going to wear, but to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things would be added to them as well. When Paul was thanking the Philippians for their generous support of his ministry, he said in Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So we can give confidently. And then lastly, we need to give thankfully. We need to give thankfully. Notice, the theme of thanksgiving here at the end of this chapter, verse 11. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God because of the proof 
given by this ministry. They will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing greatness of God in you. Lots of things going on in these verses. The first one is to say that giving is an act of worship that honors and glorifies God. Bottom line. It just, it just honors and glorifies God when we give to him. It's also a blatant act of obedience that undoubtedly proves the genuineness of our faith in Christ. And I think that's what he was saying there in verse 13, talking about the Jewish Christians that they were giving this money to in Jerusalem, who, if you remember in the, from the book of Acts, were skeptical about these Gentiles getting saved. Really? Gentiles are getting saved? And, and I'm sure they may have heard of some of the problems in the Corinthian church. Wondering, hey, are these people the real deal? Are they actually saved? And so Paul says, hey, this is a simple way for you to show to the Jewish believers that your conversion is real. You are indeed their brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, notice the theme of thanksgiving, that that this is a thanksgiving to God. This is through many thanksgivings to God. He says it a number of times. So giving is one of the most tangible ways of expressing our gratitude to God for all that he's given us in Christ. And the larger the sacrifice you make in giving back to God, the louder you're saying thank you for the sacrifice that God made in giving his son so you could be saved. And we started here last week, and we're going to end here again in verse 15. Notice how Paul climaxes or crescendos this, this teaching on giving in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So as Paul was wrapping up his thoughts here on grace giving, his mind naturally went to the supreme expression of grace giving and that is God himself giving his son, Jesus Christ, to live and die in the place of sinners like us. And God generously and joyfully and sacrificially gave us his son on the cross so that we could be saved. And Jesus himself set the ultimate example of what it means to be a generous, joyful, sacrificial giver. Notice Back in chapter 8, verse 9, you may have noticed I skipped over this verse, but I was saving it to the end because it really is the heart of these two chapters and the heart of a, of a biblical understanding of giving. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. No greater description of the incarnation of Christ, what we're celebrating this season of Christmas. How about Jesus laid aside his glorious wealth in heaven and came to dwell among us here on this impoverished planet to be tempted, to be ridiculed and persecuted and dragged through an unfair trial and to be whipped and beaten and nailed to a cross where he suffered the wrath of his own father so that those of us who would turn from our sin and place our faith in him alone could be delivered from our sinful poverty and enjoy eternal riches with him in heaven someday. No one has ever given us 
or ever will give us as much as God has given us in Christ. And Paul simply says it's indescribable. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It's beyond description. And so while it's humanly impossible to fully express in words God's gracious gift of salvation in Christ, we can practically express our profound gratitude for our salvation by giving unsparingly back to God. That's tangible. I, 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 I don't have any words. But let me give you this tangible expression of my gratitude. And I think gratitude to God is the ultimate motivation to give to God. Or maybe I could say it this way, gratitude for the grace of God is the ultimate motivation to give to God. When we consider the indescribable sacrifice that God made for us, no sacrifice will be too great for us to make for him. How could we ever withhold anything from God who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all? God didn't spare his own son for you. What are you willing to spare for him? What are you willing to spare so that others can come to know Jesus Christ like you have? What are you willing to spare so God's work can be accomplished here in our community and around the world? Can you spare $100? Can you spare $1,000? Can you spare $10,000? Can you spare $100,000? George Mueller who we all know and love because of his generous spirit, always trusting God to provide for all those orphanages that he started. He said this, quote, if we do not give, we shall find that our one brief life is gone before we ever are aware of it, and that in return we have done little for that adorable one who bought us with his precious blood and to whom belongs all that we have and all that we are. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity to be reminded of the incredible sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross, willingly giving up his own life, you being willing to give up your own son. Lord, we should be doubly grateful for the grace that you've shown us by not sparing your son and for Christ not sparing his life but being willing to give up the glories of heaven and come down here to this fallen, broken, sin-cursed world to walk in the dust with us, to live the life that we could never live and to die the death we all deserve to die. And so, Lord, as we prayerfully consider how you would want us to give on a regular basis and then even towards this opportunity to perhaps build a student center that will be a blessing to not just our students, but also our children and our adults and people in our community that we could hopefully reach through um, an expanded facility. Lord, we just ask that you would continue to provide for us uh, in ways that we could just be blown away at your goodness and your faithfulness 
and that you'll get all the honor and all the praise and all the glory for all of this. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.